You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. Whoa, you just blew my mind because nobody talks about that shit. Like, thank you for this. Like, I was looking forward to this chat, man. I love your interviews. I thank you for what you're doing. Like, it's excellent. And um, people can continue to learn the stories of, the, of these uh, bedroom Beethovens. Um, how did you find out about this? Are you? Oh, my God. Having something like this to shed light on, on, on us is amazing. Like, we really need this documentation. So people like you are definitely needed. <laughs> From the Five Seven Collective, welcome everybody. Another week, another guest. This episode, I'm proud to present to you. Uh, my name is Funky DL, aka the beat making, rhyme slaying kid from the East, uh, UK hip hop artist, traveling worldwide. I've shared the stage with many artists, including The Roots, Master Ace, Destiny's Child, Eminem, and Dr. Dre, Killer Priest, you know, <laughs> the list goes on. I went from people watching me on stage and taking photos with their bay and now they sending messages with just the flame. And now I reminisce about the days when I was living up in Dennis and I look at everything that I became. Today I'm getting messages from people who were hating on me, wanted to collaborate. But thank you all the same. No, thank you all the same. But thank you all the same. No, thank you all the same. Listen, guys, if you're not hip to the theme of this podcast, it's all about the 10,000 hour journey of an artist, right? So Funky DL hits the scene as a young man who at 19 scored a five-album deal with no management, won some awards, and was the only X3 consecutive UK hip-hop nominee, period, remixing for well-known acts, traveling the world, touring and producing for underground and established acts, owning and running a respected record label, dealing with mainstay labels. Look, don't be envious, though. Hard work is at the core of his essence, and we dive into his career, which now spans four decades and something that he is confident of is that whatever answer is sought by anyone trying to be better at anything you are the starting block and the finish line what happens in between those points is much of the time based on your true inner core desire your effort your patience your faith your belief and ultimately your persistence to become better faster stronger greater so if you're doing the math I release an episode once a week. This is episode 52, and there are 52 weeks a year. So Funky DL swings by to celebrate my one-year anniversary of the podcast, and I want to thank you, the listener, for humoring my podcast. A year ago, this didn't exist, and through a lot of research and hard work, I wanted to create a media platform that dived into the mind of a music producer, and I've gotten some amazing opportunities to have some conversations with some amazing people. The fact that people tune in every week, it's just the cherry on top. So thank you all, and here is the 52 more episodes. BedroomBeethovens.com is the website, and there you can support the show by ordering a t-shirt or sign up for the Patreon. You can even write in to me, express what's on your mind, feedback, criticisms, 
the whole nine. Also, feel free to rate this show on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the YouTube, and just help contribute a plank of wood to the podcast ship I'm building here so each week I can continue sailing these stories to your ears. I don't know. I tried to keep that shit metaphor up to the end. But either way, I'm Cello. Episode 52, Funky DL. Let's get it started. When we first connected, you apologized for having such a crazy week and the lines of communication kind of dimmed there for a minute. But I expected nothing less from the hardest working man in hip hop. Yeah, you know what it is, is I've actually um, taken on a teaching role very, very recently. I started last week and, you know, I've never worked for an organization before. I've only ever done my thing. And so it's it's a whole new experience to me becoming an employee, you know. Um, and there's a lot of admin and there's a lot of health and safety uh, courses and manuals. And it's just, it's been a lot. It's been really full on. So I'm just getting to grips with it all. Well, like you mentioned, like you're you're definitely a figure who's put in this 10,000 hour journey. But what's interesting is you're you're obviously a legend in the UK scene, but I'm surprised because you probably have a lot of crazy stories touring with Eminem and Dre in the early 2000s, Destiny's Child. I mean, you've seen the scenery and landscape of hip hop and music evolve and change. And I don't know if you've realized it, but now that it's the year 2020, that's four different decades that you've been making music now. Well, hold on, hold on a second, because I know I, I was four different decades. I mean, I, I started making music in the 90s, um, yep. and that proceeded to, the, yeah, you're right, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Pretty good. And I know you're not a relatively old guy. I mean, you're around the same age as me, but you know, if you think about the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and here we are, your fourth decade. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, um, it's, yeah, it's been a whirlwind of a journey, you know. But the thing is, it doesn't surprise me because I never ever dreamed that I would do anything other than this, you know, and I wasn't in it for the short term. So, you know, music has been my passion since about 11, 12 years old. And it's funny because I was speaking to a school teacher of mine. Um, recently and he said to me he remembered me in school and and he said that I was one of the few students that he could see at age 12 had already begun his life journey wow yeah I mean are are we talking when with your interest in music are we talking hip-hop are we talking like Lorindo Almeida and Oscar Peterson and uh Ahmad Jamal or Bill Evans or were you kind of entrenched in the early beginning stages of hip-hop for me I got kind of um, inducted into hip-hop through a tribe called Quest and De La Soul. So it would, the, the jazz sound and that kind of real, you know, jazz soul, jazz funk sound really appealed to me. It was the Jungle Brothers and Tribe and Daylight. And it was just something about what they were doing musically that appealed to me. So that's where it begun, the intrigue into, well, what is making that sound? Why is it that these chords and these melodic structures sound the way that they sound as opposed to the stuff I was hearing from Bismarcky and KRS-One, you know? So it was at about 16 years old, around 1994, that I began to start to investigate what jazz music was and start buying jazz records and looking at sampling jazz records. So that's kind of where my journey into jazz really began around around 1994. (laughs) 
So, but a year later in 1995, before you were even 18, you had a few demos. You didn't know anything about the music industry. What were you thinking at the time? Were you thinking that, oh, I want my name in big light somewhere, or I just want my tunes on the radio, or what was kind of the mindset when you were stepping foot in the industry? I was the whole hog. I wanted everything. You know, I wanted, as a youngster, I just saw that my life was going to be led by pursuing a career in hip-hop music, and that anything and everything that comes with that, I want to experience. Um, There was no uh, plan B. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to do something significant in hip-hop music. I just, I had this tunnel vision, and I just followed it through every single day with everything that I had. So, yeah, I wanted it all. I wanted to taste everything. But it was really more about just being a part of hip-hop. Hip-hop for me was something really special, you know, coming up as a teenager and just hearing the creativity. And I just knew I wanted to be a part of everything that was magic about it. I mean, when I look at the journey, it it makes it seem like it came easy because your first album, you were getting awards. Then you'd hit the studio. Then you cranked out more albums. They're all well-received. It resulted in tours. You just, you made it look so easy, but like any, any path worth venturing down, I'm sure that there were pitfalls. Was there writer's block? Hell, was there a paper cut? I mean, you just made it look so effortlessly. This is interesting that you asked this question because, you know, when I tell people my story, you know, at 19 years old, I released my first album and I got signed to a five album deal and I had no manager and I was winning awards, like you say, um, you know, for best hip hop act out here at the mobile awards. But as I said earlier, you know, my journey started at 11, 12. And so there was seven, at least seven years prior to dropping that first album when I was just, when I was just making demos and I was, um, you know, sending my stuff to radio when I was looking in the back of, um, you know, urban music magazines for audition opportunities. Um, and sometimes I got turned away. Sometimes, um, you know, nobody would call you back. You know, I also did a stint in a, a doing work experience in a recording studio when I was 17 and they had me making tea and coffee for like six months and they knew I had a capability to work with the machinery and I had experience, you know, from a, a studio my uncle had in operating the machinery, but they never let me do a thing. So there was frustration, there was trials and tribulations, and it was having to overcome all of that, you know, trying to get meetings and trying to get people to take you seriously. And, you know, at that age, I never had much money. My parents were neither that encouraging nor discouraging about what I was doing. They were kind of neutral, and I guess they just had their eyes on me. So, yeah, you know, that period from when I was 12 to 19 didn't, it, it was seven years, seven years of pursuing something before I could kind of step into the marketplace with what I had. And seven years is a long time. I mean, it kind of goes by quick when you're a kid, but, you know, it's still seven years nonetheless. And then throughout my journey, um, even after kind of coming into 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 the, the music scene and, and getting known, there's been times when, you know, you find out, a record label is kind of swindling money behind your back and some records don't sell as well as others and I'm putting my own money in. You know, there's, there, there came the time around 2009, 2010 where the, the, the physical market just completely collapsed and, you know, all these HMVs and towers and distributors and plants closed down and there was no money coming in at all. And so there's been loads of periods during my career where there's been really great highs and a lot of pitfalls, but 
when when music is your passion, to make music, to be a part of music, you endure. And that's one of the pieces of advice I give to people. I say, when you do something that you love, then even when it gets difficult, you will have more of an ambition to c- continue pursuing it because you love it, irrespective of the results. Whereas if it's something that you don't love and it's just result-driven, when you hit those hurdles and difficult points, that's at a time when it's more easy to say, I ain't doing this no more. So when you decided to join Utmost Records, in retrospect, did they did they take care of you? Or were they one of those bad actors that you, that you explained that kind of led you to creating Washington Classics? Utmost is a, is a really tricky story because I signed to, before signing to Utmost, I signed to Almo Sounds, and, and there was a spin-off label called Almost. And that was like the big deal that I got. And what happened was um, it all fell apart within a few months and the record label decided to let me go. And they allowed me to, to walk with my first album, Classic Was The Day. So this was prior to Classic Was The Day even being released. The A&R man at Almost and Almo decided to leave and set up Upmost. And so I went and joined Upmost. This is all in 1997. This is just really happening really fast. I joined Upmost they released my first album, um, but it was the same label that, unfortunately, by the time we got to my second album in 98, I wasn't getting any royalty statements. Um, I was seeing records of mine being pressed and, you know, um, seeing stuff in Japan that I had never seen before. I saw my 12-inch circles uh, with a pink label spinning at 45 RPM, and I had no idea that this record even existed i was getting told i was getting told by distribution companies that my record the london all-stars had just sold so many units but utmost were telling me that it's really difficult to sell and it hasn't been selling and what really revealed everything to me is in by setting up washington classics and releasing the very first 12 inch um triangular rotations well the very first 12 inch independently because i'd done two on washington classics while i was with utmost and i had the permission to do that but when i did the very next one on my own in 1999 it sold a lot of units and I said well it can't be all of a sudden that I've I've done this record and then bam you know it's selling out the gate but everything I had done previously um, with Upmost I had no record you know they weren't transparent so I didn't know whether it was selling or not so the inkling I had was that it was selling and I wasn't getting any money and then the record label just up and disappeared Wow, just like that. And and what was really crazy is I was always scratching my head why they didn't want to cultivate that relationship between you and Nujabes. I don't you know, if you weren't proactive and you didn't include your cell phone number with your latest musical shipment, they never you guys would never have linked up. And I, I was like, man, is was utmost afraid that maybe Nujabes would have stole you away? Were they just overprotective? Were they just not interested in outside collaborations? So I'm just I'm so glad that you you know, included your cell phone number or else that relationship might never have happened. Yeah, that's true. I mean, utmost, I never ever got to hear utmost side of it. Hey, yo, this is the Funky DL. Consist. This is dedicated to all those weak rappers. Yo, I'm unstoppable. Forget what you heard. It's about to be rewritten. Consist banging out joints to keep hitting the top and keeping on 
flow like a river. I'm like the mailman, cause I always deliver. I'm a specialist, lyricist, nemesis, never gets lazy with the microphone. I'm better than you ever is lyrically, musically, back the way it used to be. Rocking on the microphone is very old news to me. It's funny because I linked up with the dude that signed me up most years after. And I, I kind of made it like it was water under the bridge because I knew that I wasn't gonna work with him in the same capacity. And he was also responsible, this particular cat, for signing me at almost and and giving me a push there and he did make certain things happen so it's kind of a bittersweet relationship um even though he did what he did or allegedly did what he did in terms of the, my releases and the utmost the unstoppable dj sticks do your best high that productions I still got a fondness for the good times that we shared in making music and doing classicals today. So I linked up with him years after, um, and it turns out he swindled another artist, a, a, a two-step garage music artist, out of like £16,000, so I heard. Um, and so that was just his MO. But I never had a conversation with him about um, Nuja Best reaching out to them. It's only Nuja Best that told me that he reached out to Upmost several times, and... I don't know what communication they had, but it, but I was never aware of it through Upmost. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I had Substantial on a, a couple of weeks ago, and I know he was a another close friend of Nuja Best, and uh, we we talked a little bit about their relationship. But but you guys were close as well, and I heard that he was a, a very resourceful guy. So I'm glad that happened. And if he wanted to get something done, he got it done. Um, I know that there's a crazy story behind him needing air conditioning and his parents wouldn't get it for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He told me that story and he, and he said he was, he said, I think he said he was around 14 years old and it was just, you know, Japan can get so hot um, and I've experienced that out there and he said that it was just so hot in his room and he asked his parents uh, for, air, for air conditioning but of course it cost a lot of money so they said no and so he went to a racetrack um, and Picked a horse, uh, didn't know anything about horses, and put some money. He didn't, I can't remember if he said how much money he put down on a horse, but he said he won back the equivalent of about 1200 US dollars and then got air conditioning <laughs> just from this one race. I'm glad he didn't like develop a gambling habit because, or maybe it was just beginner's luck out the gate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he 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 was a prudent character. So, and you know, he had his his two record stores in in Shibuya, Giddish Records and um, Tribe, and um, you know, he he was a businessman at heart as well as a musician. So, you know, I I, I didn't see any problems there. This episode is supported by a local company. Yes, I can say that because it's Austin, Texas's own beard brand. I know you can't see me, but I have a beard. Hey, don't believe me? Hey, honey, do I have a beard? Yes. Has my beard become better groomed? Does it smell better? Is it softer? Yes, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. You were fine before, but this is a massive improvement. It's all good. Beard Brand is similar to podcasting. We unite and build communities, and they do just that, uniting us beardsmen by selling and providing products for grooming, styling, and maintaining of hair, skin, mustaches, and, duh, beards. Sea salt sprays, styling bombs, wax, all the tools you need to put your best foot forward. Head on over to beardbrand.com and all orders over $50 will receive free shipping from a great company that fosters style for the urban beardsmen. They even have gift cards. 
It makes a good Valentine's Day gift or for any special occasion. Hint, hint. Yeah, there was there was something else we talked about with his record store. He wouldn't stock Jay-Z in his store. Uh, it, it's a little bit deeper uh, on just not liking his music. He hated the fact that he named his albums with volume one and volume two. He hated naming things in succession. And it's cool that he kind of stayed true to his convictions because he's a very popular artist. But it's his store. He can kind of stock what he wants. But the psychology behind it, he had a wealth of knowledge, just not just on production, but he knew how to navigate the market beyond getting lost in translation, like how to name an album, what the cover should look like, stuff like that. And I'm sure you picked a, a few of those tricks along the way as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, uh, to, to, to have worked with Nujib when it came to albums, because it wasn't with the Jay-Z thing. And when you say volume one and volume two, I guess his thing was specific about the wording, because, of course, you know, he has his first collection and second collection, but he was just very keen on the way things were worded. So, for an example, when I did the album Music from NAFTA, it was never supposed to be called that. It was supposed to be called The Latin Love Story Volume 2 because it just followed the theme of Volume 1. But he never said to me he didn't like the volume. He just said he came up with the title music from NAFTA and he, and he thought that NAFTA is my first name. And he thought that, well, that's an interesting word. It's an unusual word. And when you call the album music from NAFTA, people are not going to know whether NAFTA is a person or a place. Um, and so he, he felt it provided a sense of intrigue. And also with the, the tracks on the album, because they were songs that had already existed in a, in a different format with different beats, I just had them listed as the Latin remix. And he said, no, to rename the tracks and use the original title in the tracks, but just add or maybe take away something. So, for example, A4, on um, when I recorded it originally on the Red, and, Red Pill and Blue Pill album, when I did the Latin version, it was supposed to be called A4, the Latin remix. And I just simply named it A4 Papers. See, man, the, the mind of a producer is so fascinating for me. And like what I found interesting is uh, also is like you recorded some songs while you were at university. And because you sat on them so long, you decided, you know, maybe I should put some fresh rhymes over it. And there's kind of this gift and curse effect when you sit on songs too long where you're like, uh, you know, I, I think I could improve it here, fine tune it there, tweak this there. So preferably, you you probably like to get songs out fast so it doesn't mess with your psyche too much, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more nowadays and over the last God knows how many years, I, I make music fresh, you know. There's no more kind of like, let me take something that's really old because I want to be excited about what I'm doing. And I think when I was in university and I was doing Jazzmatic, the remixes, that was kind of a real turning point for me because I had made every single track in accordance to each Nas acapella I had. There was nothing on there that I had already sitting around and just said, let me throw it and time the acapella to this. And so it gave me a real buzz and a real uh, excitement to be making this music that was new to me, you know, and wasn't just some stuff that I had sitting there for years. I mean, there's nothing wrong. If something's dope, something's dope. So an example is uh, there's a track on Black Current Jazz 2 called It's Beautiful. And that song 
the beat for it I had made when I was a teenager on a Commodore Amiga using ProTracker, um, you know, the 8-bit sampling system. But I, I had never, like when I made the beat, I thought it was really nice, but I had never used it. And then I, when I was doing Black Current Jazz 2, I realized that actually that sample that I had used for that beat is something that I want to revisit. And so I got the, the records out again and put the beat together again, of course, in a more professional way with more professional equipment. Um, but it came out really dope. And so that's, I guess, it's not the exact same beat because I haven't taken the same audio. I've remade it, you know, to, to current standards. But 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 the idea is really old because that's something I did around 1994, 95. And then it appears for the first time to the public in the marketplace as a track on the 2011 album. So it, it, you're, you're, you're doing that. You're also like gainfully in employed now with the company you also did law school studies so in addition to making music you're exercising that right brain but your left brain is equally at work because now you understand the motives of how people act the boundaries of the music industry the perspective of conglomerates like spotify how they operate so now you have this multifaceted view of the whole game now you have this 360 view of the whole game yeah i mean i was always kind of fortunate because at school i was quite the academic, you know, I, I I found it easy to grasp a lot of information academically, whether it's mathematics or English or geography or, you know, whatever subjects I was studying, but it just didn't interest me. But I knew I had the capability. So, um, you know, moving forward into the more creative side of things, that capability in terms of academia never left me. And I, I didn't want to wonder if I was ever capable of achieving something of great standing in academia. So um, doing the law degree really helped me to solidify um, knowing that I'm capable on more than just one front and I'm not a one-dimensional human being. When you were in your cohort, did you did you find yourself to be among like-minded people like that? Or did you just kind of feel like an outlier? Did you feel like an alien? Uh, slightly like an alien. I mean, th the thing is that when I went to university, I was 33. Um, and most of the students in my class were a lot younger than me, you know, were in their early 20s. Um, and then there were a few who were older than me, like 55 and those kind of ages. So I kind of sat right in the middle, but it was, there was hardly anybody who was actually my age in university. And so a lot of the people didn't have, a lot of students didn't have much life experience. And then the ones who did were of a different generation. Um, so I kind of felt like, you know, kind of stuck in the middle. It's funny because actually I found more in common with some of the lecturers who were closer to my age than the students. It was a cool experience. I mean, I, you know, when you're doing a law degree, you don't, it's not really an opportunity to meet other people who are creative, you know? So I didn't really see much in terms of that. But even with some of the students, they weren't even academics. They were there. Um, and I think some of them were there because it's kind of what you do. You leave school, you go to college uh, for a couple of years, you get your A-levels and then you go to university. And um, But whether they were taking that experience seriously, that's questionable. Or maybe their dad was a lawyer and that's just what you do. Exactly. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm 34. I'm going to be 35 this year. And my wife is really urging that I go back to school. I, ha I have a degree, but she wants me to get a degree in something else. And the, the hesitation I have is because I don't want to feel like an alien because I know I, I know what set you apart from other people is your work ethic. But also there's that age gap. So when everyone's going to the pub or they have their friends, 
sign that attendance register so they don't have to go to class. You're not even in that mindset and neither am I. Like, you know, we, we're here to get something done, uh, you know, and then after we're in school, we have to go to the studio, we have to record and those 14 hour days, they, they don't slow down. No, they don't, but I should, I, I wouldn't let that put you off because I think for me, I had my eyes firmly set on the prize. So it was like, when I get into this environment, irrespective of what everybody else in this environment is doing, I've come here to attain something. And I, and, I, and that's what has to be done. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I have an older brother who's a year older than me. And he, he my dad advised him to go to a college in um, a place called East Ham in East London, go to a university. And my brother said he didn't want to go there because there were too many Asians. Um, you know, he just felt like he didn't want to be, he wanted to be surrounded by either a mixture of people or more black kids. And they were just, that part of London is heavily populated with Asian people. When I say Asian, meaning like Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani. So um, my brother said, you know, no, I don't want to go there. But my dad's response to him was, are you going for the Asians? Are you going for your education? Hey, that's, that's sound advice. Yeah. You can't really argue with that. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people go there for social experiments or inclusion or to feel like they're part of something. I guess for me, I've always been or um, always kind of seen myself as a leader, uh, someone who doesn't wait for the crowd or do what the crowd's doing and decides to instigate something, whether for myself or for, for other people. And that started for me at a very young age when I was um, in secondary school, probably at about age 15. I, I, you know, I like to play football, soccer, and and so so many of us did. And I saw that there wasn't really an outlet for us to play other than in our our lunch break, and it was kind of very disorganized. And so, one day sitting in a geography lesson, lesson, I came up with the idea <clears throat> to um to start a soccer league. And I said to myself, okay, there's six classes in my year, and we're going to do it. We're going to make it eight eight players per side and you can have three substitutes and we're going to get every player if they want to play has to pay 20 pence and then I'm going to use that money to buy a cup and a runners-up cup and we're going to get it engraved and and then I put together a timetable for these soccer matches and it was this real big thing that everybody got excited about and um, you know it started and, and a lot of the population of the school turned out to watch the first match and you know we had referees that were impartial so from different year groups or teachers and we ran this whole league and cup or I ran this whole league and cup and you know I reprimand people when they played uh, in terms of bad sportsmanship and people saw me as a person of authority even though I'm this 15 year old kid and it's funny because the teachers brought me up in assembly when the whole thing was over and we were um we were presenting the cups and they said that this student has been able to do in this school what no teacher has ever done um and so for me at a young age I just knew that I was capable of of showing leadership and deciding what I wanted and then going for it I love that. And, and also you're able to kind of adapt to kind of how people are taking music nowadays too. I wanted to explore something with you because I know maybe, maybe like seven, eight years ago, I know maybe you weren't a big fan of streaming culture, you know, getting 0.0003 cents a stream. But I think you're a very smart guy exhibiting that leadership because you're aware that those 3 million people that played your songs this year that maybe didn't last year. It's not about the 0.003 cents per stream. 
it's about peripheral sales that now, oh, if they were introduced to you, now you have 19 albums that you could potentially profit from. So what you do yesterday is going to bring you a dollar either today or tomorrow. I think that's very smart. When you look at money, um, of course, money has its day-to-day value, but money is not the only thing with value. So, for example, when I pressed Life After Denison and Denison Point on vinyl recently, that cost me £3,200 for 300 units. Now, even if I was to sell all 300 units at, say, a dealer price to a distributor, I would make back £3,000. I'd be £200 short. Now, of course, I sell um, some of those units directly from my website, but uh, so you can get a a higher return from the direct-to-customer sale. However, that has to then factor in postage because I don't charge postage on my site. No matter where you are in the world, it's the same price to buy that piece of uh, that final CD. And so it means that if someone orders that, vinyl in New Zealand, it cost me £15 of the money that they spent. You know, if they spent $30, which is like around £24, £15 of that is going just to the postage of that record. Now, someone will say, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. But where I make up for it is I say, well, number one, the value isn't just in the money. So, for example, I'm getting exposure of this new product in so many online stores who maybe have bought a couple of copies Um, And so there's that visibility and the fact that it has visibility now in a record shelf and that it's available to a fan and they can treasure that as something sentimental. But also I can look at the fiscal side of it. For example, when I then say, okay, I'm going to bundle this record with the last two records I did and do them for $50. And so if I'm just sitting on old stock and I've made my money back from that stock, if I bundle it with the new stock, then instead of me now making $25, $30 per sale, I can make 50 or in some cases 75. So it's really about just looking at it in many different ways. It's the same when I run social media ads. It's like I run ads and I don't sit here and say, if I'm going to spend a hundred pounds on an ad, then that, then that ad needs to make me £200. The ad might only make me £20. But again, you're capitalising on visibility, exposure, awareness. And these all of these things are not easy to measure financially. That then feeds into word of mouth and discovery and so on and so forth. And so as a business, I remember going to Japan once and um, there was a record label that I, I did a licensing deal with called Daytrack. And Daytrack were a subsidiary company of a bigger group whose business was real estate. And they said to me, DL, we make our money from real estate and we make a lot of it. And we feed that money into what we're passionate about, which is music. But we don't really sit here um, requiring everything we do in terms of investing into music to make us back a profit. We have one thing that takes care of the other. And so the way that I look at it is even if I make a move with an advert or I press a record and I lose money on it, as long as I'm not losing money across everything I'm doing panoramically, then one thing will pay for the other. So streaming might pay for the vinyl, vinyl may pay for adverts, you know what I'm saying? Or t-shirts or merchandise. I don't I don't try to restrict it. Let, let me give this a shot because I want to see if I got my business hat on. If I go to your vinyl shop and I buy the bundle, which would be like your latest album and maybe the, maybe the previous two, chances are I am a new fan who's playing catch up. But if I 
by the Tribe Called Quest on gold vinyl, I'm probably a super fan that's been invested in your career for a few years. Is that kind of how you measure it? I think it's just important to cover all bases. You know, a fan wrote to me very recently and said, thanks for doing the Denison Point in Life and after Denison album on vinyl because this is now something that can't be easily deleted from a hard drive. You know, this this actually sits as a physical product in my collection and is not easy to erase. And just one person saying that to me has so much value and so much meaning. And sometimes even my fans will remind me that actually the physical aspect of what I do is really important. I can't do physical products for everything I release because it's just too expensive. But I wouldn't say that because it, because of the prices, I would eradicate it completely from all future releases. I think it plays its part. I think if you don't own it on vinyl or cassette, then you don't own the music. You know, if you're streaming on Spotify, you don't own it. Yeah, that's correct. And the thing is, things like Spotify can go down. You know, it's all it's all about, um, a lot of it is about control. This is what I say to up-and-coming artists about data and information. You know, if you've got 12,000 likes on, on, on Facebook, what happens if Facebook is out of here like MySpace once was? How do you reach all of those people who were interested in what you were doing with your new release? And this is why I encourage people to use sites like Bandcamp, because Bandcamp is a site where, of course, you can exchange music for information. And that information is not held by Bandcamp where you don't have access to it. You can get the email addresses and you can send out your newsletters and do your, your posts and and keep people informed about what you're doing. Whereas if I have 25, 26,000 followers on Spotify, Spotify will never tell me who, who they are precisely. It's just a number. And I, I kind of feel like that nothing phases you either because you did a tribute to Nuja Best, Stevie Wonder, Jay Dilla, Tribe. You, you'll undertake any challenge no matter what legacy is involved because I know some producers, they would be shaking in their boots if they had to do a tribute album to Tribe, but you did it with no breaks or samples. It's crazy. You know, some people will look at it like, wow, this is too much of an undertaking or will people like it? But I knew it was from the heart. I did it from the heart and I did it. You know, I spent £9,000 on putting that project together in terms of the music, uh, the artwork, pressing the vinyl, doing the gold, doing the black. Everything all in cost me 9000 No, sorry, £8,000. Now, from doing the physical product... The amount of money I made back from it was £9,000. Maybe a little bit more to date, but not that much more. So it's like I put up eight grand to make a grand back. But the thing is, for me, it wasn't about the money. If it was about the money, then I don't even know if I, I've never spent that much on a project before as an independent artist. So for me, it was just about I so wanted to do it and I so enjoyed doing it. You know, but I can see, I mean, I remember having a conversation not long ago, well, maybe about a year and a bit ago with Bobito, and I sent him the project, and he said, listen, you're a dope producer, but he couldn't, he just said he couldn't listen to it, because, it, you know, the, the original Midnight Marauders album is immortalized, and that's all he wants to know it as to, to be, so, and I, and I get it, I get it, some people are just going to feel that way, but you know, that was my way of marking my respect for a tropical quest, and it was from the heart, so I don't feel any type of way about it. Well, let's talk about a special place in your catalog. It's the year 2020. Your 20th studio album is kind of next in line, 2020. You know, any big plans for that? I thought about it, but but I don't know if it's, you know, sometimes these things don't always match up. Um, it would be ideal. 
I don't I don't have any plans to write anything for for a while because even if you look at the last two years, like when I did Black Current Jazz three, that was planned, you know, and I got started on that maybe the back end of two thousand and seventeen, going into early two thousand and eighteen, and and my focus was just that album for that year, and then what happened was I met someone, I met this girl on um, Instagram. And we kind of exchanged numbers and we, we started talking and she was telling me about her home situation and living with her parents. And just in our back and forth conversation, um, it started, we start, I started to share what it was like when I used to live with my parents. And then I realized that actually I should be documenting this because there's just so much. And that's how Denison Point came about. It wasn't planned. It was just, I was having these conversations and then it was sparking all of this, these memories and ideas that I had to really document these memories. And then within four months of releasing uh, Black Current Jazz 3, I was so engulfed in everything about Denison Point that that album didn't just appear. And so that wasn't, that wasn't, you know, I, w- I, would, I would never really plan to release an album four months of releasing another album. And then going into uh, 2019, then I did the Death album. And that for me was, was, uh, really different because I, I, I went into a space where it wasn't about samples, but for a funky DL album uh, with vocals on it, which I had never really done. Um, but then again, Life After Denison wasn't planned. And I remember doing Denison Point and someone saying to me, do you think that you would do a follow-up? And I said, nah, because, you know, I, I just don't see it. But then it just started to formulate in my mind and then here it came. So in the space of two years, between 2018 and 2019, there's four funky DL albums with vocals. Uh, example is that they were organic, and that's where I'm at. It's, it's about doing something organically. So even if something comes out quick, it's organic. It's just happened. I was on that energy at that time. But I don't want to try to make an album because it's 2020 and it's the 20th album if I'm not ready. Well, you know, let me plant the seed. If you ever want to do a follow-up to the interview, but this time have a podcaster talking to you instead of a radio host, holler at me. I can fill in for Dave VJ. Okay. (laughs) But uh, there you have it, man. Funky DL, legendary producer. Uh, The new wax is available, washingtonclassics.com slash collection slash vinyl. Like he mentioned, there's bundles. Very, very much uh, a lot of appreciation for having me on. Uh, Very much thankful and grateful for that. And uh, to just share my story with you guys, man. 